Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 26th of May, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Um, we're going to get started with uh, the, the what's the word, for goodness sake, the judicial uh, result from the European Court of Human Rights yesterday. Um, they've issued what's being described as a landmark ruling on the UK's mass surveillance regime, which, of course, run mainly by GCHQ. Let's just have a look and see uh, what it said. Uh, the UK's historical bulk interception regime violated the right to privacy protected by Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights and freedom of expression protected by Article 10. Um, the, the case was brought by the American Civil Liberties Union, by Amnesty International, by Bites for All, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, the Hungarian Civil Liberties Union, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, uh, the Legal Resources Centre, which is South African, Liberty and also Privacy International, uh, also Big Brother Watch, Open Rights Group, uh, English Pen, and Dr. Constance Kurtz, and also the Bureau, Bureau of Investigative Journalism and Alice Ross. So quite a few people involved in this. Uh, it has taken eight years to get to this point. Um, and of course, this was with respect to uh, exposure from Edward Snowden. Um, so let's just have a look at uh, the key issues here. First of all, uh, they said that there was an absence of independent authorization, a failure to include the categories of selectors in the application for a warrant, uh, and the failure to subject selectors linked to an individual to prior internal authorization. Um, maybe we could say, welcome to Alex, uh, welcome to the program. Uh, what are your thoughts on what that means? Well, uh, we better explain to the audience very quickly what selectors are. Selectors is any alphanumeric string which is used to target people, companies, individuals, entities uh, in electronic communications, particularly written ones. Uh, at the time when I was just leaving GCHQ in 2009, this transition was beginning from classic interception of emails where for example, you uh, put in an, an, uh, an order to the system to target the email address um, villain at badguy.com and moving over to a system where, for example, to give a banal contrived example, Mike, if I were to sign off an email to you with okie dokie hokey cokey or something even more unique and identifiable than that, then that string inside any message or email I sent would be picked out. That's what's referred to here by selectors targeting an individual. The broader context of it, and this was a legal issue when I was at GCHQ, but it's spun out of control since then because of the new upstream data collection that GCHQ and NSA do through programs like PRISM and Tempera is that let's say you have more or less total visibility of the traffic, including in the domestic environment, Britain, America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, which uh, you're not supposed to legally fish in. Um, if you uh, then say, I want this to happen, I want to, to follow this guy using a, an expression that only he uh, uses. That has to go in the European Court of Human Rights verdict to judges, magistrates, judicial people to be signed off. In the British historic system, which has gone through many legal iterations, uh, for example, the regulatory uh, Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, RIPA, was replaced uh, during the uh, pr process of coming up with this verdict over seven years with new legislation. But historically, the common law statutory model in Britain and America, is that 
a, a minister in British Parliament, one of Her Majesty's principal secretary of state, will say, go after this guy. And then it would have been up to me as a GCHQ officer at the time to say, OK, now I am going to authorise myself to go after this guy using these expressions. No judicial or jury scrutiny came to pass. There's a lot more we could say, but we're pressed for time. So basically, it is uh, more than a slap on the wrist. It is the whole of the signatories countries to the European Convention on Human Rights, which predates the EU, which, which came through pressure from Britain, specifically Churchill's government. They are saying, Britain, you are not living up to your own common law historic standards, something that Bill Binney, the NSA whistleblower of great seniority, has been saying for 20 years, that it was a deliberate path to go the bulk data route when we could have been more targeted. Uh, that's absolutely right. Now, let's just uh, uh, put this on screen because uh, they went on to say the interception of communi communications data is as serious a breach of privacy as the interception of content and should be subjected to the same protections. The UK regime for bulk interception of communications data was hence unlawful. Uh, and Alex, just very, very briefly, I mean, that is quite a strong statement. But the question is then, um, what potential sanctions are there against the UK government? None, because the Strasbourg Court, the European Court of Human Rights, does not have enforceable verdicts, unless the judge in your particular member state, such as Austria or the Netherlands, thinks that he has unilateral power to impose that. Uh, in a common law country like Britain, Ireland, America, Canada, uh, some of which, of course, are members of the ECHR, there are no sanctions. But let's note that the solution is never found in Napoleonic law or even half, halfway house law like ECHR law, which is Britain plus the continent together, because under that scheme, uh, these are qualified rights, Article 8 and 10 rights. And uh, in particular, the court is not saying that bulk data interception is beyond the powers of a government. They're saying a government can do it if it puts enough uh, judicial spiffing chaps in, 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 a, in a row to say that this is OK in this instance. It has not gone the further route uh, of the 1765 uh, British judgment, English judgment specifically, um, uh, Entink versus Carrington, which tells the government you do not have the right to fish in our data. Should, should, we, should we be adding to that? We should be grateful to the European Court of Human Rights for helping, though, flag up the whole subject, particularly as we've recently uh, seen people being given permission to break the law in carrying out their supposed state duties. Well, and particularly because the bulk data collection continues. So uh, this is a report from Spy B. This is the uh, behavioural uh, advisors to the SAGE group, which advises the government on their COVID policy. Uh, this is from March 2021. Uh, and they say this is, uh, document is a rapid evidence analysis based on the latest available data prepared by the University of Oxford on behalf of Spy B. It was presented at the March 9th, 2021 SPY B meeting and signed off uh, by chairs on behalf of the committee. And really what it's about is uh, looking at whether people's behavior changed between the period before having been given their vaccinations and the period after uh, they'd been given their vaccinations. And then the question is, how were they discovering whether people's behavior changed? Uh, well, it turns out they were using location data from mobile phones. So they were bulk gathering data uh, which was linked to vaccination centres for February 2021. Uh, and they were then using difference in difference modelling, as they describe it, that mimics a randomised control trial. Uh, and they found that vaccinated users increased their mobility range compared to pre-vaccination mobility. Uh, this was only by a modest amount, 218 metres, uh, for the entire population as an average, suggesting nearby contacts or visits, uh, supporting the Pareto principle we find that although 79% of the vaccinated 
have limited mobility changes. 21% who are already highly mobile increased their mobility even more by around 12.4% after vaccination. Uh, and it goes on to say uh, that CK Delta mobile phone location data uh, are anonymized and aggregated uh, GDPR compliant call data records for 18.2 million users in the period of February the 1st to February the 28th, 2021. CK Delta, a company that collected, cleaned and anonymized the mobile phone location data from a large British mobile network operator, granted us access to the data set under a research contract. But Alex, uh, again, very briefly, please. But what really struck me about that, if we have a look at CK Delta's website here, this is an Irish company. Um, and so my question is, why is an Irish company receiving data from a British uh, mobile phone uh, company and then, in inverted commas, anonymizing that, if it is even possible to anonymize it properly? Uh, where's, the, where's the Irish link here? Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland, is a sweet spot jurisdiction for spooks. It's not in the Five Eyes. It's not even in NATO. Uh, it has constitutional uh, neutrality from the various blocs, including intelligence blocs, uh, let alone military ones. It's English speaking and it's governed by common law, so you can get away with more. Uh, at least that's the theory. Uh, the likes of Gemma O'Doherty have said with good reason in recent scandals like the GSOC scandal, the scandal uh, around the, the data collection by the body that oversees the Irish Republic's police and Garda Shikana, they've long argued that MI5 types uh, have just moved over to Dublin and set up arm's length operations to hoover data on behalf of Britain in a way that wouldn't be quite so tolerated in Britain, at least uh, not, not by the letter of the law. That's probably what's going on. The other thing I would uh, add about SBIB spinning this out for public health purposes is that unlike GCHQ, MI5, MI6 officers who are very conscientious in most cases and do not want to flood their own entry uh, with useless collected data, when you're telling uh, private companies to go and hoover stuff up for some noble aim that dangled like a carrot in front of a donkey, like keep the population safe from the COVID, then people are going to go on intrigue-led fishing expeditions. Ooh, let's see what we can find here. A completely different motivation. Uh, yes, indeed. But it doesn't end there because... Uh, uh... NHS Digital is uh, building a brand new data set uh, based on all our GP records. Um, and uh, well, first of all, I just wanted to show you the NHS Digital website and see, because they claimed on the BBC this morning uh, that uh, the, the fact that they were doing this was clearly visible on their website. There was plenty of information for you if you want to opt out and so on. Um, so I just thought we would have a look in, at their website and see uh, how visible this is. So first of all, data and technology that uh, improves lives. Well, that's not it. So let's scroll on down. We've got uh, combating coronavirus and some statistics. That's not it. Uh, so let's keep going. They're talking about their services. They're talking about the NHS app, a safe, simple, secure way to get information and manage NHS services. We're talking about the 111 online service uh, and so on. We scroll on down. We've got uh, NHS big trials already, sorry, NHS digitrials already saving lives. And we've got some latest blog posts. Um, we've got some section about data and information right at the very end of the page. Um, and the very last thing on the page is about how we look after your information. Um, so if you click on that, it takes you to another page. Uh, here we are, um, and uh, we can see certain things there. For example, understanding the health and care information we collect and your choices on information we hold about you and so on. So let's have a look at that. Uh, they talk about the use of information that could identify you, but this You've got to go looking for this. It's not immediately obvious. Um, 
they give you some choices about the information that they hold. For example, opting out of sharing your confidential patient information. Um, and uh, when you go to that page, it takes you to uh, a description of the various ways to opt out. There are two types of opt out that you've got to follow, one for medical records held at your GP practice and one for information held by NHS Digital. Now, I'm not clear whether this information held by NHS Digital is derived from the, opt from the uh, uh, information held by your GP, um, but if it is, then I would ask why, the, if you've opt out, uh, opted out of that, that you aren't automatically opted out of the information held by NHS Digital, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, but I'll just make the point that this page was last updated in December 2019, so there's no new information here um, about this latest data set that they're gathering. Um, but just remind everybody, of course, you can opt out at any time uh, for this. Uh, you can go to this page here, which is uh, choosing if, you're, uh, if data from your health records is shared for research and planning. Uh, but there's a caveat on this page, and it is under the coronavirus update. Uh, and it says to help the NHS respond to coronavirus, your information may be used for coronavirus research purposes. Even if you've chosen not to share it, any information used will be shared appropriately and lawfully. Well, really, will it? How do we know that? We can't know that, really. So, uh, Alex, the, uh, the data sharing, the bulk data collection, uh, and the sharing with private companies and the pharmaceutical industry and insurance companies, this is absolutely on the cards. It's already happening to some degree. It's going to happen much more. Uh, there are no protections for this. Yes, this ultimately is a false view of human nature, uh, a, a fantastic one on which Napoleonic law was based, uh, which to this day on the continent and increasingly in Britain, sadly, uh, involves uh, public uh, executive people, magistrates in the broadest sense, being told, um, you will use your conscience, won't you? You'll be jolly good chaps, won't you? Uh, here's unlimited power and, and data. You won't abuse it, will you? Uh, the common law heritage, as uh, we have uh, explained in our Dissident's Guide to the Constitution series, uh, is to accept that governments like the rest of us are fallen and have evil temptations and cannot be given unlimited power. Uh, a famous and never too often quoted observation by Lord Acton in the late 19th century is that absolute power corrupts absolutely. That insight is the whole basis of lawful government in the English-speaking world. Uh, so although we can't blame it on the Continentals, we are using the Continental idea that the magistrate is above suspicion and will act conscientiously as cover for nefarious intent at home. Indeed. Now, uh, updates, some updates to uh, many people's mobile phones have taken place, which now allows the government to roll out emergency alerts. Um, so what are these? Well, emergency alerts is a new service from the UK government it's expected to launch in the summer of 2021. Emergency alerts will warn you if there's any danger to life nearby. In an emergency, your phone or tablet will receive an alert with advice about how to stay safe. Uh, so apparently your phone or tablet may make a loud siren-like sound, even if it's set on silent. It will vibrate and it will read out the alert. Um, so uh, you have to stop what you're doing and follow the instructions in the alert. Uh, sometimes the alert will include a phone number or a link to the gov.uk website for more information. Uh, and the government and mobile phone networks are testing emergency alerts at the moment. So if you're in one of the test areas or you travel through one of the test areas, you may get an emergency alert. But you've got to be very careful if you're driving. You must stop at the side of the road in a safe place in order to read your emergency alert. So you're in... You're in traffic, you're on a smart motorway where the uh, speed limits are changing, the lanes are changing, 
the weather's not too good and while you're concentrating on the traffic, Big Brother government is going to be sounding an alarm in your car. Yes, but that's telling you to stop, but you can't stop because there's now no place to pull over because it's a smart motorway. That, that's right, but uh, don't worry, it's there to keep you safe. It's there to keep you uh, safe. But, but it goes on because the reasons you might get an alert, you might get an alert uh, if there's severe flooding, if there are fires, if there are explosions, terrorist incidents, public health emergencies. Uh, and emergency alerts will only be sent by the emergency services, uh, government departments, agencies and public uh, uh, bodies that deal with emergencies. It could also be a health related, I think, a, if I didn't say that already, a health related emergency. Um, so uh, uh, I'm not really sure what to say about this. This is functionality that you can switch off in your phone. But I did notice that in uh, on, on, an, on an iPhone, there are two options. There are severe alerts and there are critical alerts. Uh, but the government only recommends that if you want to opt out, that you switch off severe alerts. You, they're very keen that you maintain access to critical so alerts. So we could do with a little bit of a technical advice here on whether it's possible to switch these things off altogether. Alternatively, perhaps people should start charging the government for using their personal mobile phone. Yes. Send a bill. Well, we'd like to say thank you to the viewers that uh, spotted this article in the Kent Live, which is truly astonishing. Here's the headline. Fury after anti-vaxxer tells children in Deal they will die if they have COVID-19 vaccine. Parents are outraged after their children were harassed while walking alone. Well, what caught the eye of our reader, uh, viewer rather, to this article? Well, it comes up directly uh, in the article, a very big image, which is this. The UK column is run by Brian Gerrish, Mike Robinson. Why should I trust the UK column? Put simply, you shouldn't. The question of whether or not to trust a news organisation. And, uh, well, you get the gist of it. So um, this is essentially uh, what Kent Live did. And, of course, they immediately started to spin the story by cutting off the full content of the leaflet. Now, we, we believe that what the leaflet is talking about is the importance of being able to make a choice uh, in respect to vaccinations, it would appear, despite government and media coverage. But clearly, the uh, Kent Live team have cut that image off um, in order to start the spin in this story. And we get a bit more of a clue to this. If I take you down to the bottom, uh, the... Um, the blob that you can see at the bottom of the screen is where they've removed the name, number and Facebook page of the actual woman who approached the 13-year-old girl, supposedly with the leaflet. So they remove her details. They don't print the details of the person who's the main focus of the story, but they promote uh, both myself and you, Mike, in order to, to get the full spin across onto the UK column. So let's have a little look at um, what the uh, article had to say. It said that independent body NewsGuard says the UK column News publishes false and misleading health information, including about COVID-19. The trust tool rates the site 17.5 of 100 for news credibility and transparency and warns readers to proceed with caution. And then it, go, then it jumps. Where does the article jump to? Sharoline Humphreys, a teaching assistant who lives in Deal, said she is furious after her daughter was approached by the anti-vaxxer. At just 12 years old, 
Charlene's daughter was allegedly accused by a woman on a bicycle, sorry, accosted by a woman on a bicycle on Sunday, May the 23rd at around 3 p.m. So this is um, an article written by Carmela Haswell. And what she's doing here is branding the UK column as publishing false and misleading information um, by using hearsay. She's simply quoting what NewsGuard has said, and there's no factual evidence in her accusation at all. But on it goes, parents in Deal are outraged after their children were approached by an anti-vaxxer on a bicycle. Um, several pa parents have even taken to social media, media to warn others of the woman. They accuse her of being forceful um, with some teenagers while handling out the flyers which promote UK column news. So what's gone on here is that uh, Carmela Haswell, the reporter, has now conflated the name of the UK column with forceful approaches to teenagers and indeed children, because one of the uh, girls that they mention is only 12 years old. So this is pretty despicable stuff, Mike. And uh, clearly, uh, this is not about reporting what actually happened. This is about spinning the story to attack the UK column. We get a further clue to this because, strangely, this has happened before outside this particular school, Goodwin's Academy. And yet it seems that Kent Live had to prompt the school to respond which uh, they did. They said the individual in question is well known in the town and we've been in touch with police about her. Officers have told her that any incidents involving her should be reported directly to them. Our student safety is a matter of the utmost importance to us and we've regularly talked to students about how to stay safe. So this is quite interesting because if the woman's well known, why is she well known? Is she well known because she is um, is accosting children, or perhaps she's a very vulnerable person herself? Has she got some health issues? Has she lost relatives to vaccine damage? Well, of course, the uh, Kent Live reporter doesn't do any uh, proper investigation into the, the heart of this story. So who is the reporter? Well, let's bring her up on the screen. Uh, it's the lovely Carmela Haswell. Uh, there's some contact details uh, for her there. Uh, as we will mention in a minute, it's surprisingly difficult to contact Kent Live because they don't seem to have any operational phones at the moment. But those are the details that she gives on her Facebook page. And uh, that's extremely helpful. Um, we had a little look at what she'd been tweeting out and we came across this, which we found very interesting. Uh, she says that her university dissertation focused on the UK newspaper's treatment of hashtag Robin Williams suicide. They focused on stereotypical one reason answers that misrepresented suicide as well as the great man himself. Now, when I read that, I couldn't help feeling that what Carmela Haswell was doing uh, in reporting on the UK column was exactly the same misrepresentation. Uh, that she'd complained about apparently in her dissertation, and then she uses the same techniques. Uh, Alex, just before I add to this, because we've got a formal response to this lady in Kent Live, this is pretty despicable spin by what is supposed to be a major local uh, newspaper. Well, certainly there's no attempt to get a right of reply uh, from us. 
uh, in the piece uh, or indeed to approach the lady in question who has disseminated information independently produced with no reference to us uh, ad advising people to consume UK column news with the same scepticism as they consume any other news outlet. Uh, the worrying focus uh, on self the egotism in the, in the cl classic sense of the word egotism uh, that Carmela Haswell uh, displays is, I'm afraid, all too typical of the younger generation uh, of uh, journalists these days. Most of their social media feeds is about I, me, mine. And indeed, that is what people will find on that young lady's Twitter page and encourage people to go and have a look at it. But of course, we quickly find something else. And that is, of course, what is she doing? She's busy promoting the government line on vaccination without having done any proper investigation herself. Now, we did something that uh, we thought was the right thing to do, and that is we tried to contact this journalist this morning to say that we were going to be reporting today and effectively give her the right of reply to justify what she put in her article. We couldn't uh, get through to Kent Live because they don't have operational phone numbers now. We're in a pandemic, a crisis. Uh, we couldn't get through to reach PLC. They don't have operating telephones. And at that stage, we decided the thing to do was to send an email. And this is what we sent to the young lady. Dear Carmela, I've just read your article above. Unfortunately, you did not take the trouble to contact us for comment on the incident. And as a result, your article as published is clearly misleading. In response, we'll be commentating on your article and your reporting live today at 1300 via ukcolumn.org. Unlike Kent Live, we would like to give you the opportunity to speak to us first to explain why you reported as you did. Before we go live for our news programme today, you can call on a number at any time uh, before 12.30 today, and I'll be very happy to speak with you. Thank you for your attention to this matter. Well, she had the opportunity, but of course, silence was the result. So we'd now like to give our formal reply to uh, this young lady uh, and Kent Live as a publication. And the first thing we'd like to say is UK Column has a very strong record of reporting child abuse and supporting the protection of children. Uh, she's actually, I think, been trying to undermine that status, but maybe she wasn't aware the UK column does not condone and would not condone any approach to children. To do so is wrong. There's no ifs or buts about that. UK column does not produce, give away or sell leaflets promoting the UK column or any other topic. Uh, on we go. UK column is appalled by Camilla Haswell's Kent Live and Reach PLC's crude attempt to conflate UK column factual reporting on vaccines with inappropriate approaches to children. UK Column notes that while the personal contact details of the woman approaching the children has been redacted, the personal names of Brian Gerrish and Mike Robinson have been deliberately promoted. Although clearly being very young and very inexperienced, sorry, although clearly being a very young, very inexperienced reporter, Camilla Haswell made no contact with UK Column to fully investigate what had happened and gain our opinion. And lastly, UK Column notes that Kent Live Reach PLC reporters and editorial teams cannot be contacted by phone. This is quite amazing, Mike, because essentially we're now seeing the major press and media companies with budgets of millions of pounds are still claiming that they can't have anybody on the end of the phone 
to talk to other journalists or indeed members of the public. Uh, now, obviously, the main uh, promotional image uh, was the se uh, a section of the leaflet talking about trust. Trust is something which is core to the uh, censorship narrative at the moment because the government is very much keen to promote the idea that you should have trusted sources of information that you go to, i.e. sources that you go to, and you don't question what they write. Uh, so let's look at the full text of what uh, was in the leaflet. It was taken from the UK Column website, and we're saying what uh, we're asking the question: Why should you, the viewer or the listener, trust the UK Column? And we're saying you absolutely should not, certainly not blind trust. This is not what we're asking for. It's not what we want. We want people to be absolutely critical about the information we're putting out uh, and considering it, investigating it for yourselves, challenging us where we get it wrong if we get it wrong. And so it goes on to say the question of whether or not to trust a news organization is a false choice. Making such a choice is promoted by government, the media, and two, uh, two new organization types, the fact checker and the trust provider. It disenfranchises readers, viewers, and listeners. It's based on the principle that if you trust the media organization you're visiting, then there's no need for you to check the information they present. So we ask you not to trust us. Instead, view everything published here with a critical eye where possible, primary source material is made available for everything we publish, check it, and make up your own mind. And to be totally sure, Mike, that is text on our website. That is not um, that is not a leaflet or any form of promotional material which no, we the, put the, out. The leaflet that they were showing has lifted the text directly from our website. Yeah. That is what we have. That is our position. And that is our position because the likes of NewsGuard and the Trust Project and various other trust organizations are building this idea in people's minds that you must trust special people like the BBC. And uh, that, Alex, uh, means that people don't get the, if they just blindly trust anything they're told by people on the internet or by, and this goes for social media as well, we should have a critical eye on all information that we discover. Yes, Mike, uh, the silly battles that we have seen in the alternative media have largely revolved over which brand uh, is more trustworthy than another. But that is not the question with which the uh, the mainstream media, when they were great, uh, rose to their uh, position of admiration and prominence. They rose to that position by competing against each other for the most accurate, uh, reliable and well-told news with the best sourcing. And uh, of course, I've, I see another side of this as well in translating and interpreting, because whenever public health agendas uh, are being disseminated and I get to translate or interpret the content, uh, senior public health figures are often telling new doctors and new policymakers coming up from university, uh, well, what we need to do to get the plebs to take jabs, for example, without asking uh, impertinent questions, is to make sure that the right popstrel is telling them to get it because our experience or our research tells us that these these remarkable uh, plebs uh, three levels below us in society will accept anything if it's told by the right face so i'm afraid that what we're seeing there um with this idea of trusted brands and uh, uh trust uh, provision coming through now uh, is just a, a naked exploitation of that. Uh, we have seen some very senior current and retired politicians and other movers and shakers getting into this profitable investment opportunity now on both sides of the Atlantic of providing the gateway services that say this brand is trusted and this one is not. Indeed, right. Okay. Now, if you uh, do like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and also please share our material uh, with a critical eye uh, on the various platforms and so on.
Okay. Now I'm putting up an advert again, but also with an apology because I'd promised to get out the Greater Manchester Vaccine Centre uh, clip I, uh, together with an article, which I wasn't able to do. The reason for this is that a huge amount of information has suddenly come into the UK column. And we decided that we needed to process some of that before releasing particularly the article. And now the article has been divided into two parts. We will be releasing the video tonight together with the article. So you'll be able to take a look through Greater Manchester Vaccination Centre and you will be able to read what is taking place against the uh, backdrop of a number of other issues in that article. So uh, it is coming out tonight. Many apologies. It's been delayed. Um, and uh, well, we'll put this one up. This was seen by a viewer. Thank you very much for sending us sending it through to us. Um, now we didn't produce this uh, this sticker, Brian. We certainly didn't. No, and no. uh, we didn't put it up. Um, so it would be a bit unfair for anybody to accuse us of being responsible for it. <laughs> well, no doubt somebody will, but we didn't. But we we take the uh, sentiment. Yes. Uh, but Alex, uh, more stuff uh, in the stories we're watching section on the website. Most of these have already rolled off that section. So this is just another gentle reminder to people not to be passive consumers and just to reach uh, to consume us through video uploads on second party platforms, but to make a habit of going to ukcolumn.org, find out how to get the news from there, search the archive, use the text search facility and follow the almost daily changing stories we're watching among other sections of the website. Thank yep. you, Alex. Excellent. Now, an eagle-eyed uh, viewer has noticed that suddenly there's a flurry of Brave New World uh, talks coming up, and they were particularly interested as to why this was being chosen as the topic. They're not giving an answer. They're simply saying, just watch out for these. Uh, so the one on the screen at the moment, a Brave New World for extradition law. Well, there's an interesting thing. Where's that? Where is that one heading? And they coupled it with this one, Brave New World, speech by Sam Woods, given at the Association of British Insurers. So um, there seems to be a focus very much on a brave new world. And um, anybody got any further thoughts on why this is suddenly popping up? We'd be uh, pleased to know. Now, I put out a plea for people who are watching us from maybe more out of the way places to let us know. And I thought I'd run this one today because uh, this is contact from a viewer in Zambia, Africa. I watch UK column now every week from Zambia, Africa. Not sure if that counts as obscure. I've been here for 19 years as a missionary with my family. We're involved in a mix of different things. And this email, which is quite long, goes on to explain that people in Zambia are not really um, taking the jab. They're being naughty. They're being very suspicious and sceptical of it. Although it says um, that many of the expats have rushed to get it as soon as possible. And that's presumably because the expats think that they're more intelligent professionals and they're reading The Guardian and The, the Daily Telegraph. That's my guess. Uh, but she's also talking, or the person in, who wrote this is also talking about uh, the fact that they've had a friend who, who had a, um, essentially a scar on their head and that since taking the vaccine, that scar area um, will simply not heal. Well, it was healed and now it's no longer healed. And so they're asking if anybody can assist with information on that. 
uh, I think there's a lot to be discussed with uh, the immune system responses. But we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for Zambia for contacting us. We've also got this one here, uh, which is a great email where uh, we've been told that a team, Nikki New, went out to film the Manchester protest on the 15th, but also took recording gear and collected some interesting interviews with a variety of people. Now, this is truly excellent because the more people out talking on the streets and interacting with the public, the better it is. Uh, the video clip that they provided is here. Um, Manchester anti-lockdown protest 15th of May 2021. I've not looked at this clip, so I'm taking it on face value, um, but very interested in viewer feedback on those interviews that Nikki New mentions. Thank you for sending that in. Uh, and uh, Alex, uh, what have we got here? This is an unsourced report uh, of the army on the streets again to promote uh, uh, vaccinations. Given what we've just been talking about in the last segment, I will stress heavily that this is unsourced. I cannot personally see any other plausible explanation of what's going on here, given that it is a recent photograph clearly taken in Britain with obvious troops wearing obvious face masks. So it, it can't be much other than it purports to be on first analysis. Uh, so it is uh, apparent that in the hotspots where we're told the Indian variant, we're not allowed to call it that in Scottish government, of course, um, but the uh, Indian variant is supposedly coming to the fore in certain Lancashire and Bedfordshire towns, which are heavy on South Asian people. Um, troops are being sent door to door to persuade, cajole or otherwise entice people into getting jabbed. Uh, something that's rather reminiscent of what we have seen in Germany in certain hotspots, alleged hotspots a year ago. Uh, yes. Now, uh, let's uh, put this on screen. Moderna says that its COVID-19 vaccine is safe and appears effective in adolescents. And they're saying that, uh, uh, well, this is what they're demanding. But the question is, what evidence do they have to support that? Now, Alex is going to be talking a bit more about uh, vaccination in children in a second. But just uh, consider what, where, how they're able to justify making statements that it is safe and appears effective in adolescence. Uh, and let's first of all have a look at uh, this gentleman. This is uh, Peter Doshi. Uh, he's uh, the initiator of the Restoring Invisible and Abandoned Trials Pressure Group in the United States. He's Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Health Services Research at the University of Maryland School of uh, Pharmacy. Um, and he's also an Associate Editor at the BMJ, formerly the British Medical Journal. Uh, his research focuses on the drug approval process uh, how risks and benefits of medical products are communicated, and improving the credibility and accuracy of evidence synthesis and biomedical publications. So uh, he has just published in the last few days this article in the BMJ, COVID-19 vaccines in the rush for regulatory approval. Do we need more data? So let's just have a look at what he's saying here. Uh, first of all, after rollout under emergency authorization, manufacturers of COVID-19 vaccines now have their sights on regulatory approval. That's full regulatory approval. But what's the rush, asks Peter Doshi, and is just six months of data from now unblinded trials acceptable? So this is something that we have been highlighting for a little bit of time, uh, that the, uh, the control groups from the trials are no longer control groups because they have been given the vaccine. So uh, let's see, the BMJ asked Moderna, Pfizer and Janssen, this is Johnson & Johnson, what proportion of trial participants were now firmly, formally unblinded and how many originally allocated to placebo 
have now received a vaccine. Pfizer declined to say, but Moderna announced that as of April the 13th, all placebo participants had been offered the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine and 98% of those have received the vaccine. In other words, the article says, the trial is unblinded and the placebo group no longer exists. And so uh, this is just really a pretty unprecedented situation once again. So many, so much of what has happened in the last 14 months is utterly unprecedented. Uh, and this is another case of it. The trials are no longer worth the paper that they're written on because they are unblinded. There can be no long-term follow-up uh, with people that were in the placebo group. And therefore, there can be no justification from any claim uh, by the manufacturers that the vaccines are safe. It's as simple as that. They have no evidence to support it. They have no, no evidence, but what we are seeing, and this is part of the reason for the delay in our article from the Greater Manchester uh, Vaccination Centre, is that as you, as you follow the trail of the yellow card vaccine adverse reaction data, uh, you find that it doesn't just disappear into the MHRA. In fact, it's disappearing into a vast black hole, which includes a range of other uh, of other organisations. And of course, on the fringes, we've got the financial support from Bill and Melinda Gates. So what's happening to this data that MHRA said was there for the public safety to ensure that the public were safe from vaccines? This data appears to simply going in as part of the overall benefit for the vaccine companies themselves as part of their trials. Uh, but Alex, if we've got the army and, and we've also had reports of uh, the fire brigade on the streets to uh, try to encourage people to uh, get vaccinations, in other countries, it's just as bad. So in the United States, uh, local judges offering sentence reduction, reductions to offenders who get vaccinated. This is being reported by WSB TV2 in Atlanta and two counties in that state of Georgia, Hall County and Dawson County, have particularly low take up rates of uh, at least one jab, uh, only a quarter of people in one of those counties. And uh, who could have predicted it? Uh, local judges, whether off their own bat or by external cajoling, who knows, have decided that when they are awarding non-custodial sentences, hours of community service, they will dock 20 to 40 hours off that sentence uh, if people go and get jabbed for the good of the community. So um, I don't think that idea originated in the uh, court managers' offices or, or indeed the judiciary of those counties. I think someone's gone and had a word with them again. Uh, yes, uh, let's that, go on to. Yes, on. sorry, let's go on to the issue of of children again. And this is uh, Pharma's Almanac. Uh, Pfizer and BioNTech received first U.S. authorization for emergency use of COVID nineteen vaccine in adolescents. So on the state side, this is already uh, something that has been lobbied heavily for. Of course, Pfizer and BioNTech are hand in glove in the production of their jab. So um, uh, Mr. Um, Albert Bourla is the chairman and chief executive officer of Pfizer, the, the, the headline company involved. And he's quoted on the left saying we, we want to return people to normality. On the right, Ugur Sahin, MD, who's the chief executive officer and co-founder of BioNTech, which is in partnership with Pfizer for this jab, uh, is effectively 
you, you could argue that he's using the, the language of ransom here uh, in saying that 12-year-olds uh, and upwards uh, will get back to normal if they have our uh, jab administered. Uh, we offer them the promise of that. And that's why you uh, regulators in North America need to jolly well hurry up and authorize on an emergency basis the jabbing of 12-year-olds and upwards. So if we think about Carmela Haswell's language, of course, with the usual state of journalistic literacy these days, she spelt 12 years old as 12 hyphen years hyphen old. But be that as it may, uh, the shock part of her sentence in question that you had on screen 10 minutes ago was at just 12 years old, the children were approached. Well, uh, that is exactly what Mr. Bula and Mr. Sahin are doing now uh, in uh, or rather going over the heads of the 12 year olds to blackmail, I would argue, um, those in uh, authority in America and indeed in Europe to emergency authorize the Pfizer BioNTech jab. So on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, as reported by Der Spiegel and covered here by the Portuguese uh, website Diario de Noticias. Uh, so the Portuguese headline is up top. And if you tap again, we will get them a machine translation of it. BioNTech, as reported by the German and then Portuguese journalists in question, hopes to have its jab available for 12 to 15 years uh, year, year olds from next week or at least next month, June in Europe. And again, here is Ugur Sahin on screen. Uh, it is very important to allow children to return to their normal school lives. So apparently he's interested in education. Mr. Sahin, and to allow them to be reunited with family and friends. So for that, you need uh, stuff in your veins, it would seem. Uh, even the New York Times, uh, and the most mainstream of mainstream news sources, is noticing that something is up with the administration of jabs to uh, adolescents. So the Centers for Disease Control in the same city of Atlanta, Georgia, we just mentioned, are investigating uh, myocarditis, uh, heart swelling, which of course has a number of viral and other causes, as usual with medical conditions. Uh, people should never assume that uh, they know the cause until they've had it properly checked out. Uh, but myocarditis has had a bit of a glut of uh, instances in, in adolescents after being jabbed. Um, Dr. Celine Gunder, an infectious disease specialist in New York, is saying this is probably a coincidence. But if you look at the lower extract, it's such a coincidence that there is a cluster around four days after receipt of the second dose of Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech jabs. That does seem rather stretching things for coincidence, I would say. Uh, also in the United States, the Montana Daily Gazette, much under fire as an outlet, but it is giving an accurate write-up here of something in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. The Montana Daily Gazette write-up is on the left here. They're talking about 35,000 people who were self-reporting their symptoms via the mobile phone at VSafe after getting jabbed, aged 16 to 54. The pregnant women involved um, reported a 13.9% pregnancy loss rate after being jabbed. Uh, which uh, is the, something that appalls the people writing it up at the Montana Daily Gazette. On the right, in a different font, is the relevant extract from the paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, which talks about spontaneous abortions in 104 cases uh, involved in this study, um, stillbirth in one woman, and other outcomes, including induced abortion and ectopic pregnancy in 10 women. So that's where you get the nearly 14% total of uh, deaths from. Adverse event findings, this is another extract from the paper itself in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, covered by the Montana Daily Gazette. Uh, VAERS, and we should point out that VAERS' total of a million adverse effects to date is all vaccines over the last 30 years, not just COVID vaccines, to, to, to make that clear to people. VAERS received and processed 221 reports 
including COVID-19 jabs among pregnant persons. Uh, so there we are. This has not been spiced up by the Montana Daily Gazette, actually. It's, uh, it's pretty first-hand data. And we have seen, in particular, with the yellowcard.ukcolumn.org presentation of the MHRA's yellow card data for Britain, uh, that there is a particular concern about uh, spontaneous and induced abortions. The figures don't seem to tally, but there is a lot, I think, of data coming out now about this uh, as a result of COVID jabs. Uh, staying in North America, it's a, a Cambridge uh, specialist in uh, infectious diseases who's gone to work in Canada most of his life, Dr. Roger Hodkinson, has told the increasingly excellent daily expose uh, in some quite lurid quotes that um, this relates to the point you were making a few minutes ago, Mike, you cannot test for fertility, that is effects on the fertility of men and women, in a trial that lasts just six months, which was mentioned a few minutes ago. Last time I checked, says Roger Hodkinson, pregnancy lasts nine months. And in order to test for sequential pregnancies and the need for longer term fertility studies, it cannot be done outside a two to four years window. Dr. Hodkinson is concerned about the expression of the spike protein uh, in the, the male reproductive system in the testes as well. And here comes his most uh, eyebrow raising quotations. He's uh, really quite well regarded, I think, in his, uh, in his field. Dr. Hodkinson says it could be described as the single event in medical malpractice in medical history. I think that means worst single event because there is no informed consent. Uh, for it to be called safe with no qualifiers is a massive distortion of the English language and culpable in court because a lot of this word salad that we're talking about in the first year of COVID has not yet come up against court and had to stand the cold hard test of the law. Uh, I think at all costs it's being kept out of courts, so although despite the effects, the, the efforts of Rainer Filmic and his associates to bring it to court. And Dr. Rodkinson concludes vaccinating children is absolutely obscene. Obscene. They are not at threat and you are putting them at risk. He's not pulling any punches there. Uh, but not a single medical authority should be taken on his own merits, of course, but Dr. Hodkinson is not one to be sniffed at. So you can add him to the pile of those who believe that something extremely criminally culpable is going on with jabbing. Uh, America's Frontline Doctors, always a website worth watching, has got some follow-up uh, on legal efforts there. So they have in a, in a court in Alabama, but this is a federal court, not a state court, the United States District Court for the Northern District of Alabama. Uh, a dozen or so doctors, some of whom are also lawyers, uh, have filed for a temporary restraining order to stop. I think it's two of the jabs, Pfizer and Moderna, being administered to 12 years old and up. And uh, they have, as a preamble, uh, to put a couple of uh, rather interesting quotations from founding fathers and, uh, and uh, previous politicians about what would happen if medicine was not... Uh, uh, regulated in the Constitution. And here, one of the signatories, Dr. Roth, is testifying towards the end that he's witnessed the death of patients caused by the jabs. He's not seen anyone die of COVID, but he has seen people die of the jabs. He says that no vaccine in history has ever caused even a fraction of the deaths that are reported to have been caused by these jabs. Again, uh, pretty sterling or stern stuff, I should say. Uh, we shall see where that leads. Moving north to Canada, the City Council in Toronto uh, has announced this. The uh, Toronto Public Health uh, Authority and the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children, which goes by the abbreviation Sick Kids, have started to uh, set up uh, uh, basically um, a, a, a self-service queue or line, as they might say in Canada, um, on a square, Nathaniel um, 
I forget the, the, the surname, but a square in, in, in Toronto for unaccompanied 12 to 17 year olds to come along, uh, enticed by ice cream. They don't have to show health cards or anything like that. There doesn't seem to be batch logging, uh, certainly no consent uh, to get jabbed single handedly. This is the Canadian uh, equivalent of the uh, England and Wales uh, legal doctrine of Gillick competencies that young people under the age of, uh, of majority can be deemed unilaterally by a, a health worker to understand and consent to proceedings without their parents knowing. Uh, the best way to find out what's happening at that square or has been happening is to look at Hugo Talks who's uh, extremely uh, uh, sensible on these issues and on Odyssey in among uh, 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 other places he has uploaded this in I would say this is not at all an alarmist title but an accurate one a video entitled they are coming for your kids uh, all those uh, bicycles you can see on screen uh, are Toronto police officers stopping people from uh, getting towards the square itself uh, that we are playing this now without uh, sound, but this is a number of uh, very concerned people. You might want to call them protesters uh, or concerned citizens trying to get cl as close as they can to the 12 to 17 year olds who are queuing up uh, just out of sight at the moment underneath that uh, raised walkway and a little further into the distance. There will be a zoom in in a moment. They are being told by the Toronto policemen that they can't come onto that square at all. They're using loud hailers. They are being reproached heavily by the police when it suits them uh, to, to, to to pull the trump card of saying these are children because uh, it, it then allows the policeman to say these are children do not raise your voices here do not use swear words which is why the way of not playing out the sound there is swearing going on here but the children are not being addressed the police and the public around are being addressed and told that these are emergency authorization only treatments they have not been authorized by the fda in the us or the equivalent there in canada um, and really a good indication of just how desperate people are getting some of those in the crowd are mothers and fathers who are shouting that they are the last line of defense against children having these things administered to them so do go and listen to the whole quarter hour there uh, it is alarming but i think necessarily so uh, and just to just to mention that i think uh, yesterday uh, to, um, mrs zahawi was in the house of commons uh, jeremy hunt stood up and asked yeah. him when are we going to start rolling out to 12 year olds and older in this country? So uh, Hugo Talks he uh, headline there, they are coming for our kids, I think is, is quite appropriate. Uh, but Alex, uh, British Columbia doctors face a penalty uh, for veering from COVID-19 health guidelines. We now flit from the east to the west of Canada and the westernmost uh, province, British Columbia, um, has this headline in the Vancouver Sun. British Columbia doctors could face a penalty for veering from or deviating from COVID-19 health guidelines. Similar things are being reported by Dr. Sam Bailey with regard to the College of Doctors and Dentists in New Zealand. Uh, one targeted doctor here is Dr. Charles Hoff of the BC town of Lytton, who's been there for many years in a practice, uh, because he wrote an open letter uh, addressed to uh, the top doctor in the province. And he's now being accused of having made false and unproven claims in that letter about the safety of, and efficacy of COVID-19 jabs. So I believe that the next thing we have is Dr. Charles Hoff uh, speaking for himself. This is going to take three minutes, but it is worth listening to his argument in full. I'm a family doctor in British Columbia. The rollout of the COVID vaccine in my community began three months ago. Now, as you might know, all of the COVID vaccines are completely new experimental gene therapies. None of them have any long-term safety data 
in either children or adults. The AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson shots have both been suspended in many countries because of potentially fatal blood clots. None of the COVID vaccines has gone through the normal five or 10 year period of safety testing. Instead, they have all been rushed through an emergency use authorization and have not been formally approved by either Health Canada or the FDA. None of the COVID shots has been shown to prevent transmission of COVID. They do not stop you getting COVID. All that the shot does is reduce your symptoms. In my medical practice, I now have six patients with ongoing neurological symptoms since getting their first COVID vaccine. They're suffering from constant pain, headaches, muscle weakness, and dizziness. And three of them have literally been disabled by it. These were three previously healthy people whose lives have now been ruined by this experiment. We have absolutely no idea what disease process has even been started, which means that we as doctors have no idea how to treat it. There is no way to reverse what it is doing. There is no antidote. Once it starts to work, we are helpless to stop it. Since December 2020, over 2,600 people have died just in the U.S. after getting their shots. And a study from Harvard has shown that only about 1% of vaccine injuries are actually ever reported. So the real-world numbers are likely to be very much higher than that. If you or one of your loved ones was killed or injured by this vaccine, you cannot sue the vaccine manufacturer because the government of Canada has granted all of these pharmaceutical companies complete indemnity against any liability for injury or death caused by these vaccines. The risk of your child dying of COVID or getting seriously sick from it is almost zero. And children are not the main spreaders of this disease. So why would you risk ruining their life with this experimental vaccine in order to protect them from a disease that really poses no risk to them at all. So if anyone tells you that your child needs to be vaccinated against COVID to protect you or their teacher or their grandparents or anyone else, it makes absolutely no sense at all. And Dr. Charles Hoff of Lytton, BC, is joining uh, the likes of Dr. Mike Yeadon, a former vice president of Pfizer, in uh, making that point that there has not yet been any satisfactory production of evidence showing that getting jabbed at any age protects other people. Something as basic as that has not yet been done. Also, Dr. Charles Hoff is not the only suitably qualified medic uh, to say that the death rate of children acknowledged as being uh, due to COVID is statistical zero. It's a matter of hundreds among millions, statistical zero, a, a tiny fraction of 1%. Now, from even the pre-COVID era, Dr. Charles Kov, um, Hoff uh, in Lytton, British Columbia, has had some ratings by his patients. The usual caveats apply. People can fill in anything they want here. Uh, but Rate MDs has the following among its uh, uh, ratings for him. Obviously, there are other people having a gripe at him, often for being a Christian and not referring women for abortions. That's uh, one of the, the common gripes on this page. But among the other comments, well before COVID from 2006, we have people saying 
that he's a great doctor whose main concern is the patient's well-being and an exceptional physician with lots of empathy for patients. Another from 2018, pre-COVID, says he's always been helpful, careful and open and you don't often find a doctor who is humble. Uh, another from later on uh, speaks about him being a man of his convictions. Uh, unlike many practitioners who just prescribe for time's sake, one can be sure that Dr. Hoff will have the patient's best interests at hand, even if current trends say otherwise. And uh, more recently, again, uh, people saying that he's uh, continuing to speak out uh, on COVID jabs, even though he's being threatened with a gag order or being struck off, as people in the chat box have already noticed. And even one saying that it's rare that he follows the Hippocratic Oath. So how has this been reported by Canada's equivalent of the BBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC? Their British Columbia reporting section reports that the province's doctors have been warned they could face discipline for spreading COVID-19 misinformation. They have particularly involved the Aboriginal Canadians uh, in the through, or the, rather their licensed spokespeople at the First Nations Authority. So CBC trumpets here that there's only been 54 recorded adverse events out of nearly 2 million doses in BC so far and as I've highlighted at the bottom there uh, the the, uh, the fact-checking uh, punch as it were against Dr Hoff is that these vaccines including the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 shots absolutely cannot alter someone's genes not that Dr Hoff has claimed that they can but I thought we would go and follow up and see what kind of link is on that page of the CBC site uh, the question being asked there is can uh, mRNA messenger RNA vaccines alter your DNA and of course, the answer they're trying to give here is no. But if you tap that again, I was interested in this caveat before the rubric began. The information in this article was current at the time of publishing, but guidelines and advice can change quickly. There is, in fact, no proof on this page uh, that uh, mRNA cannot alter your DNA. Uh, a couple of people saying it's vanishingly unlikely and we don't really know. Uh, so this made me think of the Gilbert and Sullivan opera trial by jury, which I thought I would adapt for the purposes to trial by media. And um, am I allowed to sing on the lunchtime news? Oh, if you're quick. Okay. But this we are willing to say, if it will appease reader sorrow, we'll tell you the one truth today and we'll tell you the other tomorrow. I think that was about the, the measure of CBC there, but uh, Britain's own uh, monopoly of truth, BBC, is not much better. And that has been highlighted by an excellent Welsh blogger, Big G, uh, who is always worth following. And he's made use of our material in here. Uh, the question is, uh, and it's an open letter to Brian's old friend, the director general and editor chief, editor in chief of the BBC, Mr. Hall, is where is your journalistic integrity? Uh, you might like actually to read this letter written uh, on behalf of Big G's blog by uh, another Welshman whose name appears at the end. Uh, it's, it says, Dear Tim Divy, subject journalistic integrity at the BBC. The question of journalistic integrity at the BBC is currently in sharp focus following publication of the report by retired Supreme Court Judge Lord Dyson. While you and your role as Director General and Editor-in-Chief uh, reflect on Lord Dyson's findings, I would be grateful if you would consider commissioning another investigation to establish whether factually correct information has been presented to the general public by the BBC during the coronavirus crisis. Areas of particular concern are listed below. Uh, one, the fear to report in daily news bulletins a number of the severe adverse reactions, uh, including death following rollout of vaccines. The latest information published in UK government website administered by the Med uh, Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency uh, and European Medical Regulator is set out in Annex, Annex 1 below. Uh, the information is readily available 
to your health editor, Hugh Pym, uh, and your medical editor, Fergus Walsh. Factually collect correct information would enable the public to make informed decisions to the failure to report news bulletins, the current position in respect of ongoing litigation regarding the management of coronavirus crisis in the UK and around the world, the current position with regard to coronavirus-related global lawsuits is set out in Annex 2 below, uh, and three, the funding received by the BBC from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, believed to be in the region of £53 million. Uh, the foundation has substantial investments in pharmaceutical companies developing deliver and delivering experimental gene editing treatments for COVID-19. Any investigation should aim, should aim to establish whether there's a conflict of interest that could impact the BBC's impartiality. Uh, and uh, I look forward to your observations at your earliest convenience. Yours sincerely, Wyn Jones. Well, well that, I don't think that uh, Mr. Davy will respond to that, but I thought that would interest Brian, uh, given that he's recently sought to, what's the current word? Engage with Mr. Davy. Yes, I think this is the thing to do. Don't talk about the BBC, talk about the trustees and talk about the chief, the director general as he is, Tim Davy. Make it personal. Uh, now, yesterday, uh, this was being pushed out by Lord Bethel. Uh, the MHRA has done a fantastic job uh, in the pandemic. The yellow card scheme is exemplary patient engagement. Uh, we're building on success by doubling down on its approach to public involvement. Please send in your thoughts. So they're exemplary patient engagement. Most people don't know that it exists, but that's exemplary. Right, but he's saying something important here. Um, tell us. And it would be just wonderful if half a million people would respond to this, wouldn't it? Right. OK, so let's uh, let's look at their strategy. This is their new strategy. First of all, patient uh, and uh, patient and public involvement. Uh, we will develop and introduce clear processes for engagement and involvement uh, to ensure teams have a systemic uh, means of engaging and involving patients in the public in their work and that we publish how we do that. And we're going to deliver on these processes uh, across the agency by June 2022. Um, then they've got responsiveness. Uh, they're going to design and deliver their services. Uh, and in the process of that, they're going to embed the patient and public voice to ensure that those services meet the needs of the patients and other members of the public who use them. Uh, we will implement a process allowing for more agile and regular review of high-risk issues with a system that flags when more in-depth involvement of patient groups is needed. This should make everybody feel much better. Uh, and they intend to deliver that by December 2022. Uh, internal culture, well, they're going to get the SPI-B, or they're going to get the behavioral uh, uh, analysts in. They're going to change people's behavior within the organization itself. They're going to introduce new systems, processes, and training to support the change in our culture so that every member of staff considers the patient and public perspective in their decisions, and that all staff are well supported and involved in delivering that change. And they're gonna do that by June, 2022. Uh, but they're gonna incorporate into this, into the working thinking and behaviors of all staff by ensuring patients and public is a common thread within our delivery plan. Uh, our core focus will be on patients and the public. So the message so far is patients and the public. Uh, well, just carry on to the end, and, and I'd just like to make a little com comment as, as really as a result of what I was looking at yesterday. Okay. Uh, they're going to measure some outcomes uh, because apparently they haven't been doing that before, uh, which I thought was what Yellow Card was all about. But anyway, uh, they're, not, they're going to measure some outcomes. They're going to develop, build, and embed a clear patient outcome evaluation framework uh, that will ensure they deliver all patients, uh, sorry, they will that they consider all patients and which enables us to 
demonstrate our progress in delivering our vision of being a patient-focused regulator. It's fantastic. And they're going to deliver this by December 2021. Uh, evidence of increased number of clinical trial protocols that the agency recommended and patient-reported outcome measures should be built into their design, is what they say. So that's really spectacularly good. And finally, partnerships. Uh, they're going to develop a cross-sector partnership plan that builds and delivers collaborations with partners across the health sector to improve the effectiveness of engagement and share patient insights. So actually, when the very end, we get to the, 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 the core of it here. Uh, this is about closer partnerships with the industry. Oh, yes, Mike. Closer partnerships and more regulatory fees. And the one thing that MRHA doesn't talk about, hasn't talked about, and is not talking about in its future plan is the safety of the public. It is not talking about how to protect the public from vaccine adverse effects. And we now know for certain that the MHRA yellow card data that it encourages people to collect, although it doesn't promulgate that in any serious way, that data is not being analysed in order to protect and keep the public safe. That data is simply being put back into the vaccine trials for the benefit of the drug companies themselves. And that is why in that revisionist strategy for the future, JAM tomorrow, I think that's known of, they don't actually talk about patient safety because they're not interested. They can't make money out of people being healthy, Mike. Uh, but look, they do have a survey and they are asking for people to complete the survey. So let's put the survey on screen here. This is the first page of it. If you want to find this, it's tricky uh, because the URL is one that is absolutely memorable. Uh, it is www.surveys.mhra.gov.uk slash 609AA16FC55 C58643318F7C5. Uh, and of course, that just trips off the tongue. That will be absolutely memorable. So everybody will find it really easy to find this survey uh, because they want that patient engagement. That's really what they want. So I suggest that uh, this URL will be on the, on, in the show notes for this program uh, later on this afternoon. Uh, do check back on the UK Column website for that later on and get involved in that survey. MHRA Patient Involvement Strategy Consultation, if you want to type that. Uh, phrase into your search engine of choice, uh, you might uh, find it. Nonetheless, uh, let's can, move. Can Sorry. we just say then, Mike, uh, that UK Column did something very simple. We took a good look at the MHRA's own yellow card vaccine adverse reaction statistics, which were very, very difficult to find on the government.uk website. We brought the whole subject of the MHRA's own statistics to the fore. And uh, you've also put that wonderful database together where we can allow people to search the government statistics. And now all of a sudden the MHRA is in utter turmoil. It's, it's done an article with the Daily Mail rubbishing its own yellow card data. That's what Dr. June Rain did. And now we're going to rebuild the whole internal structure of the MHRA. There's a little bit of panic going on here, Mike. It certainly seems that way. It does seem that way. Now, but the question is, uh, what was, what is, or what has happened in the last 14 months? When did that policy change? Well, of course, there's a lot of stuff in the press at the moment about comments from Dominic Cummings uh, and so on about what, who was making decisions when and so on. But I thought, and thank you very much to the person who sent this through to me, I thought we would look at what the UK's pandemic preparedness strategy was 
just going back 10 years. Um, so this is from the Department of Health. This is entitled UK Influenza Pandemic Preparedness Strategy 2011. Uh, and first of all, they define a pandemic. They say a pandemic occurs when a new influenza virus, uh, which people have no immunity to, emerges and starts spreading as easily as normal influenza. The Department of Health is working to support NHS preparedness and to reduce the impact of pandemic flu on the UK population. Uh, now, at the time, they were saying that the NHS was being told to prepare for 210,000 to 315,000 deaths over a 15-week period in if there had been a flu pandemic. Uh, and uh, But this plan suggests a proportionate response to the emergency. So let's just have a look at what that response is. First of all, business as usual. This is very a key point of this uh, report. Nothing changes. You get on with your daily lives. Business as usual. No ban on mass gatherings. No restrictions on public transport. No school closures. No public face masks. And in fact, they expressed deep concern that the people uh, that people would not be disposing of face masks properly. Uh, they might not be using them properly. They're not changing them regularly enough. Uh, and this is exactly what we've seen. Um, and uh, they make it very clear that there would be no closing of airports, ports, no closing of international rail terminals. Uh, there might be some delays in those places, but it would not stop. Uh, and uh, and there's, they were saying that they were particularly concerned about the effect of any shutdown on the economy, on the effect of any shutdown on uh, the availability and food of food and so on. And let's just remind ourselves of what uh, a very senior uh, member of the World Health Organization said at the time, uh, Keiji uh, Fukuda. Uh, he said, uh, the UK remains amongst the leaders worldwide in preparing for a pandemic. Now, I'm just going to say that the UK's pre preparations for a pandemic at that time were very similar, I think, to what Sweden actually did this time. Uh, Sweden seems to have come out of it uh, in a very good position. Uh, we haven't come out of it in a very good position at all because we haven't come out of it at all. And they keep saying this will be the last lockdown because they have no intention of fully releasing this lockdown at any yeah, point. So okay. this lockdown, uh, I think, is going to continue for a very long time. Uh, so that might be the last lockdown, but it's not going to end soon. No. Uh, well, with all the turbulence going on in the country, what better time to have a look at the Cabinet Manual? Uh, many people will not have heard of the Cabinet Manual, but it's a very important document uh, because this was David Cameron's creation for a guide to laws, conventions and rules on the operation of government. Um, so let's just have a look. This uh, I'll say firstly, thank you to another viewer who flagged this one up. So that was their image. Thank you very much for sending that through. Uh, this is when you get into the actual do document. It says, on entering government, I set out with the Deputy Prime Minister our shared desire for a political system that is looked at with admiration around the world and is more transparent and accountable. And there's David Cameron's uh, little signature at the end. I just had to bring those words up on screen because it's so outrageous to believe that anybody in the world would be looking at the UK with admiration at the moment, nor would they be able to see any sign of transparency and accountability in our government. Uh, but nevertheless, there's a review going on. And Alex, I'm just going to ask you for a bit of quick opinion on this because here's the Constitutional Committee calling for evidence on the revision of the cabinet manual 
But actually, they are, I'll just put the details up here. They're calling for evidence, written submissions, and a requiry revision of the cabinet manual uh, as to whether it needs to be updated and what role it should play as a, quote, public facing document. All this has got a deadline of the 14th of April 2021. This document is nothing to do with the Constitution. So my question is, is this now an attempt to remove our Constitution as it stands and replace it with this construct called the Cabinet Manual? Yes, in a word. Uh, for chapter and verse, go to episode five, part two of A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, where we discuss this Cabinet Manual found by going to ukcolumn.org and then going to the Constitution uh, section. Uh, I think it's under topics, actually and then finding the podcast episodes from there. Uh, New Zealand and Britain have no single codified document of the constitution, which allows David Cameron and his equivalent in New Zealand, uh, Jacinta Ardern, to lie through their teeth that Britain and New Zealand have uh, constitutions through history and precedent and custom. Uh, they are actually founded on treaties, which is what the whole of the, the point of the Dissident's Guide to the Constitution series is. But because Unlike Canada and Australia, Britain and New Zealand have not uh, brought in a codified constitution. Uh, this allows both of those governments at civil service level to do it for themselves, a bit like sisters doing it for themselves in the feminist anthem. And that's what we started this news with, really, with uh, the warrants uh, signed by the Secretary of State for the intelligence agencies. It's another case of bureaucrats are doing it for themselves. They get to flesh out the detail. And instead of saying, should there be a cabinet office manual or why is it that the cabinet office in New Zealand and Britain 10 years ago came up with the cabinet manual and said, this is the real constitution. Uh, the parliamentary committee involved has been so captured, a bit like regulatory capture of the MHRA, that they are looking at things through the prism of the civil servant and saying, we take for granted that the detail of the constitution is in this manual, which tells you when to resign, how to resign and when not to resign and what you can get away with. Uh, how public should this document be? Uh, the constitutional question is, do we need the thing? And the answer is no, because we have treaties between the sovereign and the people going back 800 years. One of which, of course, Magna Carta contains the provision that members of the executive, known as bailiffs in those days, should not be appointed if they don't know our laws and customs. Uh, which rather uh, put an end to the idea that uh, bureaucrats and even foreign pol pol police uh, officials these days can decide for themselves what's lawful. Um, thank you for that, Alex. I'm, I'm just going to say to me, it looks like this document is really a counterfeit document. Its job is to undermine the Constitution and it needs to be outed as soon as possible. So somebody's kindly put up the link through to it. You can find it quite easily if you search online. Have a look at it, and what you will realise is that this is nothing to do with the Constitution. This is a Cameron construct. I think we're out of time. Apart from one slide. Aha, uh -huh. right, okay. We will find that then. But I'll just, I'll just mention that, of course, uh, the link uh, would be uh, available under the video on the UK Column website uh, later on this afternoon. Right. Um, so, Alex, we're just going to end uh, with the final slide which is a new term that I haven't heard of before. Those good people at the Urban Dictionary have come up trumps again, and they have defined for us the term 
transvaxite. This is peak 2021. A transvaxite is a person who identifies as having been vaccinated even though they haven't actually been vaccinated. And as usual, the Urban Dictionary provides an example gleaned from their, their lexical corpus of the, the term in use. I've decided I'm a transvaxite. I think you have to go up at the end of that sentence in intonation. I've decided I'm a transvaxite. Vaccination is a spectrum and you're a bigot if you don't accept me for who I am. But I think, Mike and Brian, that this is actually quite a problematic term because transvaxite is spelt with two X's and that implies, uh, what's the word? Heterofemininity. Uh, what about those of us who are male and identify as transvaxites? Maybe we should be transvaxites with an XY. We couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave viewers with that. And... Uh and your excellent little piece of um, opera. Yes. Indeed. Well. <laughs> okay, well, the madness continues, but of course the madness is created, and this is the important thing for our viewers and listeners to see, understand, and share with other people. The objective is the utter breakdown of UK, and of course manipulating the language we use is a key part of of uh, confusing people in what's actually happening. So can we do anything about it? I think we can. Great to see people now getting out, interviewing, talking, and uh, protesting in the right way, which is sharing opinions. Keep at it. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.